Last week, when we finished chapter 10, somebody in here went, woohoo, we're done. Because it's been a tough chapter. And another comment that was made last time in a couple conversations I had is, are we making Matthew too tough? Is Matthew too tough? Or are we kind of forgetting what's in the book of Matthew? I mean, let's just read some of these together. I'm not going to review them. Here are just some of the things that Jesus has just finished saying in chapter 10. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper to your belts. Take no bag for the journey, for the worker is worth his keep. What I want you to do while you listen to these, by the way, is to remember, if you can, what Jesus meant by some of these things. Because one of the things that happens is as soon as we close the book, we almost forget the provocative nature of his words and we forget the context in which he was speaking them. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. Be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils and flog you in their synagogues. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Here's some more sayings from Jesus in chapter 10. I tell you the truth, you will not finish going through the cities of Israel before the Son of Man comes. There is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Whoever acknowledges me before men, I will also acknowledge him before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And where we left off last week, we read this. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And there we kind of came to the end of chapter 10 with a few more verses that we read. And so tonight we encounter these words. After all of those things... We hear this, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How does that work? Riddle me this, after all of those sayings and all of those things, last week Philip was asking directly, like, what does it mean exactly to take up your cross? Why does he use that imagery? And the best I could surmise from looking at it even more carefully is it literally means that you should be prepared to carry your own death instrument and come sacrifice your life along with me. That's how far you should go to follow me. And then he says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. How does he conclude all of those things? How does he say all the tough stuff in the Sermon on the Mount? How does he tell us to do things that we think are pretty much impossible? Our temptation is just to say, this is too difficult to do. And then say, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. That's what we're going to be doing tonight. 
think about those statements for a second. And if someone asks you, what does Jesus mean when he says this? What would your answer be? We're going to cover that tonight. Let's pray. Lord, you hold us in a place constantly where we're wondering what you mean by things. I can only imagine that people listening to you at that time felt the same way, arguing amongst themselves about what you probably meant by your provocative words. We still do that today. It shows us the grandeur of your words, Lord, the wisdom, the difficulty. Lord, tonight, let it show us exactly where the condition of our heart is also in contrast to your words. pray this in your name. Amen. Let's step back a moment and look at chapter 11 as a whole, because tonight we're going to do something that's never been done in Exodus. We're going to do a whole chapter tonight. And here's why we can do that, because we already covered most of chapter 11. If you remember back in the second week, <laughs> probably don't remember this, but if you go to the website, you can download Gospel of Matthew Part 2. It's the story of John the Baptist. And we covered John the Baptist all the way in chapter 3, I believe it is, and we skipped ahead to look at the conclusion of that story in chapter 11. So we've already covered most of chapter 11 as John sends disciples of his to Jesus while he's languishing in prison, asking, are you really the one? You remember that talk we had when he was doubting in prison, even after hearing from God directly, this is my son, when he's finally in prison in that dark place, he starts to wonder and he sends disciples. And Jesus has a very provocative discussion about John the Baptist and his importance. And so go back to chapter 11. You can read that up in the first part, verse 1, all the way to where we're going to pick up today in verse 20. Okay? Or go check out that CD off the website or that talk, Matthew part 2, because it's actually a pretty good talk about what happens when we're in dark places and start to doubt how we can hang on to the truth of Christ. Tonight, we're starting in verse 20. So before Jesus gets into telling everybody how his burden is easy, he's first going to go and woe some cities. All right? Let's look at Jesus woeing some cities, starting in verse 20. Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes." But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No, you will go down to the depths. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. Still tough. Where's that light, easy yoke stuff? He's still talking about the tough stuff. Why is he going after these cities? He says it here, but what's the implication? What's he got, what's he got against these cities? Yeah? They have more evidence to believe than other places perform miracles there. So he did that, and he expects that to produce some sort of belief. Like he's saying, if the miracles that had been done had been done in those other cities. Now, what are those other cities that Jesus is talking about? He's mentioning cities that we've probably heard from the Old Testament. Like, we know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, right? We know that story. Like, those were the wicked cities where nobody, except those few that left, nobody was good enough to spare. So he's actually saying, you guys are worse than those people. Because had they seen what I have just done in the cities, they would have all repented. 
Tyre and Sidon, same thing. In times of Babylonian captivity, these cities were kind of, again, the pagan, secular, horrible cities that they were held up as examples of the bad, bad cities that the prophet Isaiah and other prophets prophesied would be destroyed because of their wickedness. And now Jesus is saying, you guys are worse than those cities. Because even those cities, as bad as they are, as much as you hate the Babylonians, as bad as those pagan cities are, if I had done the miracles in those cities, even they would have repented. And you guys are still not repenting. So he's still got this tough, tough attitude about people who see it. Philip used the word evidence. I like that word, evidence, right? Because they could actually see. I mean, we yearn for that kind of evidence. But I think it's also worth noting that even when people saw evidence in Jesus' time, it didn't make as much impact as you would expect it did. I mean, here's the evidence right here that he's saying, I showed this to you, and it didn't mean much to you. So I guess as a footnote, sometimes we're looking for that kind of evidence. Sometimes we know people in our lives that go, if only I could have proof. And Jesus constantly reminds us in the Gospels that proof is not going to create belief that is real faith. Here, these people had proof. Remember, he lived in Capernaum. He spent time doing nothing but healing in Capernaum. In the other cities, he was doing the same thing. Remember, Jesus will ultimately make one of those ironic statements when he says, even if a man should rise from the dead, they would not believe you. Because he knows the irony that even he's going to raise people from the dead and he himself will be raised from the dead and people will still not believe in him. So maybe sometimes proof and evidence isn't as powerful as we think it is. We're always demanding more. Here people saw miraculous things happen right in front of them and still were thinking, eh, not exactly good enough for me. Comment? I just think it's interesting that, I mean, he says that if the miracles are performed in uh, performed like there and been performed in Sodom, like it would still be there to this day. And it just brings up a weird like idea, you know. Jesus said, "Well, yeah, you know, like if I'd done miracles there, like, they'd still be here, but I didn't, so they got destroyed." You know, like it's sort of an acknowledgement that, yeah, like you said, it won't always necessarily produce belief, or even knowing that didn't make that choice and sort of let them suffer for what they had done. You said choice, right? That's really the key here, though, isn't it? I mean, isn't the fact that what he's really making is maybe it's an exaggerated analogy? Like, does he mean that literally they would still be there? I, I think he does. But even if you don't take it that far, you could say that he's really trying to really poke them in the eye a little bit with this analogy saying that, that they would have chosen to repent if they had seen. It would have been their choice to go into sackcloth and ashes, which is the typical way that you, on an external basis, like you evidenced your repentance. Jeremy. It doesn't even matter to me if it's an exaggerated analogy. Maybe the, the question is, why didn't Jesus still do that? In other words, like, if it's the case that a city like Sodom would have repented, and these people wouldn't have, then why didn't God reveal himself? I mean, it's just one of those things that is perplexing about the Old Testament, or about reading how God apparently interacts with the the people of the, of, the, of the Hebrew scriptures versus, that doesn't really seem fair. He does treat them differently, it seems, in times, right? Now, you can't say that the Lord didn't exhibit power to try to show, like, but he did with the nation of Israel. I mean, his charge against them is, how many times did I save you in the desert from the time that you left Egypt all the way through to the promised land and all the miraculous things that happened during that period? 
And he commands them through the Passover and other means to constantly remember the miraculous things he did. But you're right. What about those other people? Because Sodom, by the way, was a pre-Israelite community. Like, it wasn't around. So maybe they don't get it. Yeah. I was going to say about the comment about God not revealing himself. I think he did in Sodom. Because when the angels of the Lord appear, um, Lot actually falls to his feet in acknowledgement that they are someone that's holy. And he has to go face down before their eyes. And the people of Sodom still respond in like their wicked ways. So God still chooses to reveal himself in, in his own way. And people don't respond. Yeah, I, I still think Jesus has that ironic statement that he brings up later in the story of Lazarus. Uh, not Lazarus, the guy who rose from the dead, but Lazarus, the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, where he says, even if a man should rise from the dead, they won't believe you. I think that Jesus still kind of knows, no matter what I do, it's only going to go so far because you people will always find a way. To, I mean, you know, you go back to the Israelite community again. I mean, miracle after miracle, you leave them alone for five minutes, they're worshiping some god somewhere, right? That's the whole story of the Old Testament. Because that's just the way we are, maybe, as humans. Do you have a comment? Or? I think if... You know, if, if the Lord is going to reveal himself to certain people, you know, or those people that know more about the Lord and have seen the Lord's works, you know, then I think that they're held to a higher accountability than someone that doesn't. And, you know, I think that's kind of what I'm getting out of this is that, you know, if there was someone that, that just made the choices that he made and didn't see as much, then he's not going to be held as accountable for as much. You know what, normally I'd really go after you for that comment, but I've got to tell you that I found a, a, an interesting article and a commentator who said exactly what you just said. Here's how he said it, though. He said that if you look at this carefully, what's happening is the people who have access to Jesus are the ones who are going to be the most harshly punished because they didn't believe. And he's translating it to a modern context, meaning that those countries and those places, churches, countries that have access to Jesus and his transforming power, because you've got to believe that Jesus is not just a historical figure that happened, but he's still alive and transforming people and doing miracles even to this day, we get the most judgment for not repenting because it was right in front of us the whole time. Okay, it's kind of, a, it's kind of an application, so you're drawing it out of this and making an implication or an application out of this text. But I thought it was an interesting point because a lot of us, that means that countries like ours, especially those people who like to push this nation into the notion of a Christian nation, which we've kind of debated and debunked a number of times, but no matter what your stance on it is, it means that if you have that kind of access to those kinds of things that we ourselves who know and have that ability to see and have testimonies of what he's doing will have even a more difficult time when it comes to the issue of repentance. So notice there is a choice here. The choice is to repent and to, and to believe the message and to believe the testimonies and to see the things that are happening. And yeah, I wish that we could see them as clearly as Jesus healing people, making blind people see and making lame people walk and all those kinds of things and healing lepers. But I still think there's a little bit of a, that irony in it that even if we saw that, I think we'd still be in here debating some things about it. Okay, he's still being tough. And all of a sudden he's going to switch. Like he's tough, 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 and all of a sudden the nice music comes on. At that time, Jesus says, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. 
All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. You know, I can just imagine as he gets to that last part there, somebody's like, uh, I beg to differ. I've been listening to this whole thing for the last while. I've been part of this for a while. I've been listening to the things you've asked us to do. Um, I'm not really sure you could call that light or easy. Let's leave that aside for a second. Let's start with the beginning of the passage. I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned. What are these things? It seems that he's talking about the things of his mission, the things of the kingdom, the ultimate revelation of who he is. He actually starts to elaborate them in just a second when he says, all things have been committed to me by my Father. You know, whenever Jesus switches over to my Father and has that close, intimate relationship again, it's reminiscent of when he uses words like Abba, He's reverting not just from our Father or your Heavenly Father, but He's actually now talking specifically about my Father. It's a much more personal and intimate way. So these things that He's talking about that have been hidden, these things are the things that have been committed to Him and His mission and what He's about to do. So they've been hidden from the wise and the learned. And they've been given to little children. So I've heard some people say that that begs against us becoming wise and intellectual. We should actually just be more simple because that's what Jesus is saying. Be simple like the little children, right? We should not go after fancy degrees and we should not try to gain the wisdom of the world and we should not try to study our way into a, some sort of understanding of God. We should just, because that's we're going to get lost. We're going to get confused. We're going to ask difficult questions. We should be like children that are simple. That's what Jesus is saying, right? None of you should have gone to school. I don't know what you're wasting your time for. All this worldly wisdom is just going to confuse your minds. Jeremy, you've got to drop out of this program you're in. What are you going to do? You're going to drop out? It's obviously having an effect on you. You're becoming crazier and crazier all the time, right? I mean, you know? You disagree, but it's right there in the Bible, man. First, I have a question that, I mean, at the very least, it doesn't seem clear that whatever it is about little children is necessarily because of their level of intelligence. What would it be about little children? Anyone know? What do you think little children is about? Well, I think it's just, I think maybe, I mean, he speaks otherwise, like having a childlike faith. Okay, so is that like a dumb faith? No, it's, it's, uh, it's not an uninformed faith. It's, it's just at the end of the day, it's, uh, you know, even with the confusion that could come up as you seek and find difficult things, it's say so you ultimately believe God exists. You know, they're, they're, at the end of the day, you can kind of wash your hands and just say, okay, like, I may not have the answer right now, but I think that God is, is, is present. You know? I also think he's using wise and learning in a very specific, narrow sense. Because obviously it's the same Jesus who says to love me with your mind, soul, heart, mind, and strength. And he adds mind to the Shema. You know, and so professors love that because it's like, well, he's you know, he added specifically the command to think. 
And so I, I think it's more against the idea of pride and arrogance and, and you know, the, the wisdom of this world, uh, you know, other philosophies and things that, that are against his existence and things that, you know, knowledge pops up and so you... So we shouldn't study anything else that might go against no. his existence? Jeremy? A better translation for the word children is actually infants. So it's even more stark the kind of the kind of statement he's making, not just having the faith of a child, but how do you have the faith of an infant? That doesn't even make sense. But that's that's even more a sense of the analogy where he's really trying to try and stress this. And I think too, if you, when Morgan mentioned arrogance, it's it's not entirely clear what it is he's referring to that has been hidden. And if you think about the context of uh, the verses prior when he's uh, rebuking these cities, you know, he's rebuking Jews and he's, he's rebuking people who should have known better. And that does, doesn't have anything to do with wisdom or intelligence per se, like your academic degrees. That has to do with knowing and still not listening. And anybody can be, any, I mean, a dunce from high school could do that or, you know, a child can do that. So he, he even, uh, James equates wisdom wisdom to deeds, and he even says this in verse 19, wisdom is vindicated by deeds. Wisdom is not the same thing as intelligence. Okay, there we go. <laughs> yeah, you can continue with your degree program, yeah. I think too, like, I think maybe the distinction would be like, if you're wise and learned in a higher standing, like pursuing higher education, then you're like, depending on that, like, in a sense. Like, I, I think the difference with little children thing is just like a dependence issue, and the fact that infants all the more so, are just so dependent on their parents or their father. And so I think that, like, obviously it's not bad to pursue higher education, but once that becomes your God or your, like, saving grace or anything where you're depending on yourself or your knowledge instead of still having that, like, childlike dependence, I think that's where it gets you into trouble. Yeah. Proper interpretation has to look at do, are they opposites and in what respects? So some of you are already right. He's not saying smart versus dumb. It does have to do more with dependence and innocence and purity and the way in which we embrace things, probably that children do better. And Jeremy's right that he has just spent time talking about cities who refused to repent, who saw, knew, but didn't repent. So he is actually equating that those things have been hidden from them. So I don't think that you can use this as some sort of proof text to say that you should not pursue education or that you should not pursue any type of intellect or wisdom. Remember that Paul, who writes most of the New Testament, had so much of that at his fingertips. Even, not just Jewish law, but he knew so much of the culture of his time and used it to reason and to find ways to present Christ using examples. So I don't think we can say that at all. Now on to Philip's point about this part about good pleasure. There's a tension here. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad at least one of you is bothered by it because we just had Jesus saying, woe to you because you didn't repent. Because if any of these things had been done, even those people like in Sodom or, or Sidon and Tyre, they would have repented. And then at some point, as Matthew arranges the text, whether it happens immediately or close in proximity, or at least he makes them arrange this way so that we see the complete thought, Jesus is actually saying, Father, it was your good pleasure to keep these things hidden from them, not to reveal it to them. 
If the first one about the woes has to do with the freedom to choose to repent, which free will people like to jump up and down and say, you see, how about this one? This sounds like one for those people who believe that God is sovereign and predestines things because he's actually keeping that from them. That being the knowledge of what his mission is and what he's all about. And they're like side by side. And it creates a tension for us. And I want you to think about this word tension because it seems to be the word that I think best describes most of this section in Matthew. There's constantly tension. Do you have a comment? Yeah. Um, okay, so that he kept these things from the other people, but he did miracles for them still. So I think that there was still that effort being made to show these people, you know, that there is a God. And so even though it's like maybe God's keeping another angle of it away from them, I think Jesus still showed them a point of what he can do and how he's, how he's God. And I also think it's kind of, uh, I just want to this point, is I think like there's something about a, about a child that's different than a human because even when you're a kid and you're a parent and you can tell them about Santa Claus, a kid will believe you, you know, because you're their parent or there's like this connection that a kid has and it's only, it's only really there when you're a kid and that's kind of where your foundation's built from is from when you're younger. Okay, but we have to be careful because we don't want to hear Jesus saying like, be like children, be gullible, like believe in Santa and believe in me, you know, like the same thing. And that actually, it's something that some people bring out of this and we have to be careful not to go there because I agree with your point that he does seem to constantly refer to children as an example. We just need to, like you said, pinpoint what does he mean by children? Like what is it about them? So that we're not like just substituting something in there that we think, Oh, children are like uh, this, because he actually has a meaning. He is using it for a reason. It's not subject to our changing the analogy. I think in the, the next like verse or two, like that it sort of makes it really clear, like that people can't even know God the Father without Jesus choosing to reveal God the Father to them. You know, so it's not a well. He gave them a chance in here. Like there is a. Jesus making that choice to reveal God the Father to people, like that there's no other way they can know God. The clear implication is even if they did see the miracles, God has somehow chosen not to allow them to understand it. That's the implication of what he has just said. And that's why side by side you see a call for repentance and people choosing to follow God, which is a free will type of banner. Right side by side with a God who actually seems to obscure their ability to recognize him. Yeah? Do you think hidden means that it can't be found? Like, do you think hidden is being that means, like, you can still find it, but you're going to have to seek it out? That's fair. I don't know if you can take and say that it's been taken away, but I think a lot of us would probably end up saying that if you've hidden it and it's led to, in context, you being unrepentant, you have taken something away. Because it is about revealing and hiding. Yeah. If we go back to the very beginning of chapter 11, John wants, John the Baptist wants Jesus to reveal himself to him. He wants to know. And Jesus doesn't. In fact, he gives a really kind of cryptic response. It has to do with what he does. And I think that if you connect that to what he's talking about here, he's, he's still saying, look, I've done these things. Um, and if that's not enough for you, 
then you know, at some level you're not getting it. But even his disciples don't understand the revelation, the capital R, that he is the Son, until after, after resurrection. So there is a sense that the kind of revelation that we're looking for, like the, you know, duh, he's Jesus, how come you don't get it? I mean, that seems to be kind of hidden from everyone at this point. Um, unless you're, I mean, because even, I mean, you can say that this, the, the disciples might have some idea, but there are other places in scripture where he says, you know, you're not getting it. But it depends on what you're getting, because I think he's saying they would have repented, like in the previous part, he didn't say, like, they would have fallen down and recognized me as the Son of God. He's just saying that they would have changed their way. Remember, the entire time that Jesus is sending out disciples and preaching, he is saying, repent, the kingdom of God is here. He's calling people back to God. Like, our version of the gospel of, you know, just believe in Jesus and your sins are forgiven is going to develop over time. You're right. That part is not yet known. I dispute that it's known after the resurrection because we do have Peter proclaiming it earlier but it's a gradual thing that they're starting to get and and Matthew seems to let it out slowly so I agree with you that the people that we're talking about in the cities even John in prison well John should know because he heard from God about this is my son I mean he probably he had a little bit of a different view but let's say talk about the people in the cities yeah I, I mean for them to like say yes Jesus is Christ and there's a trinity like that's not I think what it was meant when he said they would have repented I think he looks at him and says, you guys are going on like and still continuing to ignore God and his revelation. I think even if they recognize Jesus as a prophet, as somebody calling them back to what he's teaching about, that would have probably been seen as some kind of repentance from where they are. If it's not enough, as some of you have already pointed out, that he's already said that the Father has hidden these things, he goes on to identify himself directly as the person who mediates for the Father. All things have been committed to me by my Father. Sounds kind of like the end of Matthew where he says, all authority has been given to me under heaven and earth. I mean, he is making a very strong claim here. No one knows the Son except the Father. This word knows is a intimate knowledge, a very, very close intimate knowledge. Not like knows who he is, but knows in the most intimate sense. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. You know, some people wonder, like, is this originally in Matthew? This seems so different than this kind of careful description of Jesus. This is something that John would do. He would just insert this right in here. Kind of like a John 3.16 thing that makes it un unmistakably clear what Jesus' role is to the Father. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. You know, this analogy of yoke is used quite a bit. In this time, it was common for Jews to talk about taking on the yoke of the law. Now, we think that would sound like a burden, but actually, taking on the yoke of the law was something that they strived for. That was something that was looked upon as a good thing. You know, we think of yoke as like, oh, when you're yoked, like you're somehow weighed down. But remember that in doing work, a yoke actually helps you carry things, helps you plow things, if you're an ox. But I mean, if you're carrying things as a human being, a yoke helps you balance, makes things less heavy. That's the whole idea of why people would put them on when they're carrying like water jugs or whatever they were carrying because it distributed the weight and made it less heavy. 
So taking on the yoke of the law was a way to manage this relationship almost with God. His commandments, like this was the way to do it. But he makes an allusion here to the people who are weary and burdened by the yoke. And it's easy to see very quickly that we could say, yes, the law had gotten out of control. The law that was supposed to give life had been interpreted and reinterpreted and all the different things that had been added to it. And, and Jesus accuses the Pharisees of this directly at some point where he says to them, woe to you because you've made the law so difficult that nobody can actually live. It doesn't give life anymore. And he's making reference to it here. It's you're weary and you're burdened by this law. I will give you rest. Take my yoke. It's not the law. It's me. Just like we talked about in the Sermon on the Mount, this whole new dynamic that fulfills the law because I'm the fulfillment. Take me. I'm gentle and humble in heart. I will give you rest for your souls. Learn from me. Learn my way. Ryan. Um, do you think like some churches still throw the law on people though? Like, you know, I grew up from Carroll Chapel Church and I, I honestly feel like they still throw the book at people a lot of times, you know? Yes. Now the, exp the hard part is to say why. Is it, I don't think people in our churches mean to do that. I don't think they wake up and they say, hey, let's make this tough for people. And if anything, a lot of our churches have tried to make it too easy. Like the reason last week some of you guys were, when we read all this stuff in Matthew chapter 10 and when we read some of the other things that Jesus said, are like, dude, this is too much. Because we water Jesus down into just believe in him, he'll forgive your sins, and you're in like Flynn, and it's over, right? But what's funny is, as soon as you get in the door of the, like, oh, it's easy, it's totally easy, he'll do it, right? Easy, 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 easy. Then as soon as you're in, it sounds like what happens is what you're describing. Then suddenly we start to burden people with 100,000 things they have to change about their lives. I don't deny that you have to change your life once you belong to Jesus because you have to become more and more like him. And most of us are so far from him that we have a lot of work to do. By the way, the word easy is a bad word here in the NIV. It's a bad translation, I think. Other translations, more literal translations, the connotation is because my yoke is good, it's right, it's appropriate for you. It's made to fit for you is the, almost the literal translation. It's what you need. It's what was designed for you. And of course it's good because it brings life. Following Jesus brings eternal life. Following the law, as we find out from Paul later, is going to lead to death. So, of course, it's easy in that regard, meaning, but it's, look at it as good or fit for you or made for you, made best for you. And my burden is light. I don't know if anything about Jesus' burden is light from the sense of like, woohoo, you know. But it is light in terms of, again, it's the right thing it leads to salvation. It leads to eternal life. And his ways, if you believe this about Jesus, that God and Jesus revealing himself in this way is telling us what we were designed for, what, what is right for us, not just some arbitrary rules. Then it is the right and light way. Philip. I was just thinking even with the uh, analogy of yoke, that it's not that he's giving them a less load, 
like the load is still the same. It's more just how it's interpreted and how it's uh, distributed a little bit. Like, because people come and get brought into the church with the idea that everything's easy, and then all of a sudden here's all these rules, and here's all these things you have to do. I mean, like that is the way it is. Like that is how God set it up. There's laws that He wants you to live by, and He's not saying like, okay, well, if you do it my way, like you don't have to do anything. It's just if you do it my way, it's how it should be done, and so be manageable. Saint Philip of Diamond Bar, the Lord has spoken through you. I'm so glad you made that point because it is so important. I would have almost skipped right over it, and the Lord really has spoken through you. It is clear that Jesus is not lightening the load in terms of what, what we are supposed to do. If anything, when you read the Sermon on the Mount, as we did and spent so much time through it, you see that every time he says, you've heard it said, it's almost like it's getting harder, not easier. His standard is not going to be compromised. If you want the truth of following him, it is still hard. And you're right, the yoke does give us that kind of analogy of making it easier. But what really makes it easy is not just the yoke. It's him. Learn from me. Like, this is the best way to live. I designed you. I know you intimately. I know what you were made to do. And I've come to tell you that once again. Learn from me. That's what makes it easy and light. But you're right, the requirements don't get any easier. And, and by the way, people hearing this who become his disciples will die in difficult circumstances. They're going, some of them are going to be martyred. Some of them are going to face persecution. It doesn't get easier, but what he ultimately is promising is a life that is right, good, and the right way it was designed for us, but not always in this life. It may not always happen here. That's one of the scandals of our churches, is that we somehow turn Jesus into the answer for this life only. Jesus is the answer forever, and it may or may not change your circumstances in this life. It will certainly change you. It will transform you, but your circumstances may still be difficult, even to the point of death. So even in moments where he's talking about, come, easy, light, we still face a very serious call from Jesus. That's one of the reasons that I like the book of Matthew, because as we've gone through it, it constantly surprises us, the things that are in it. You want a last comment? Yeah, I just, you know, I just still struggle with the fact that, like, I know you have to do work when you're saved, but I guess, like, the Pharisees at the time had rules and standards that you couldn't live by. Like, they wouldn't meet the standards, and so... They made everyone else feel like they weren't good enough or they felt like they were never going to obtain the righteousness that they had. So I guess what I'm saying is, like, if it's still hard and we're still going to feel like we're not good enough, then what's really the difference between the two? Jesus offers first the chance to know that you're part of this kingdom and part of his, and then you've got a lot of work to do as well. But that work is not because you're trying to get in. That work is because you're already in. That work is because you've been transformed, because you're born again, because you've found salvation, because you are in the kingdom, which is part now and part later, and that means get busy. Not so that you can get in, but because you're in. Because you belong to me. Because now you identify with me, so do the things that are my priorities. And you see Jesus constantly, when he's telling people to do stuff, it flows because it's his will and his desire and his priority that we take care of those things. And that, that one distinction turns the whole thing on its head from every other type of 
way that we see work in other religions. Man, even on the night where I was like, we could use the words easy and light, it's still difficult. Let's pray. You find it in your good pleasure to reveal these things to us. Lord, we could struggle and try to understand why it is that people in this room, it has been revealed to them who you are and we're here as believers. And we could debate as people have done through the centuries why that is. But Lord, the important part is we are here and for a moment I just want to thank you and praise you, Father, because you have revealed things to us. And people in this room in faith have accepted who you are and that Christ you have chosen to reveal the Father to us, Holy Spirit, that you've made him known that the people in this room can confidently call upon you, Lord, as Father, and know that we'll be with you forever. So forgive our struggles with your word, but thank you that it's so strong, so powerful, so wise, that every time we come back, we're still wrestling, that we serve a God who's so much greater than our understanding, that we're still marveling at your words. Thank you, Jesus, for all that you've done. We are not worthy. And yet, you chose to do that for us. Be with us tonight in our conversations, in our community. Go with us, Lord, in the tough places. Help us to be there for one another and for those around us as times get tough around us. Pray all these things in your name. Amen.